0: Hello and welcome to another Atomic Geekdom author interview. I'm Matt. Obviously, normally Jenny's here with me, but I was just saying to my guest today, uh, when this email came across... Uh, our emails Jenny went actually I I haven't read in any of his books yet and I went oh, oh me I've read all his books and I really enjoy them so yes I, I I'll happily have a chat with him uh he has uh been around you may remember way back in the uh early days of the internet he was the former executive editor of uh crack.com which is where his uh, first book actually came from and we can talk a little bit about that and he is the author of six novels he has uh the best names for his novels i'll get into that in a little bit and his seventh one is about to come out which is uh one of the things we are going to talk about he is the artist formerly known as david wong these days he just wants you to call him jason pargin welcome jason
1: (laughs) thank you so much for having me uh and I, i we were saying this before we got on here i have so much appreciation for everybody still doing a show where you talk to authors and where people can find out about books because there are not that many left because there's not much of an economic model for doing it. And there's so many of the, I used to keep a list of all the people I've talked to for previous books over the years and that list is 99% dead shows and dead wow. publications. And because there used to be all these blogs and all these people where it would interview you and they're all gone mm-hmm. because there's no way to make money from it for so many people. So sure, the ones that are soldiering on and doing it for the love of it, you're not getting rich off of it. I yeah. assume maybe you are. No, I don't know no, your situation, no. <laughs> but, but most people are doing it. They're doing it because they love reading. They're huge fans. They just want to talk to authors. Mm -hmm. And for authors to be able to get the word out, you need stuff like this. And it's easy to do if you have a movie out. If you have a book out, there are precious few outlets left. So those of you listening to this, however you support these shows, please do it because it is crucial and hugely underrated for authors, especially I'm of course a big shot now, but for indie authors, new authors, mm-hmm. getting the word out and having somebody you can talk to in depth about your book, about your career, yeah, that's everything. And there's so few places to do it now.
0: Yeah, well, um, we we only recently started really getting into to book reviews and and talking to authors because. Um, Jenny and I, we just like to talk about books. And then it it so happened that our, our first one, uh, Jonathan Mayberry, um, we were just big Jonathan Mayberry fans. And she was like, let me reach out. He's got a book coming out. Let me see if we can get him to talk to. And then it turns out that, you know, we could, and and now we're doing it more and, and books are showing up at my door now that I didn't even ask for, which is amazing. I got two recently. I, I get home and there's packages on the doorstep. I'm like, I didn't order anything and then i see that they're from uh you know saint martin's or whoever they were from and i was just like more more books to read to review and (laughs)
1: how's there's publishers out there saying oh my god there's somebody still talking about books right on a show send them all of the books send them all of the preview copies yeah there's somebody still doing it still soldiering on
0: yeah i recently and i we don't need to talk about this but I'll, i'll just bring it up just because i you know um i i this year wrote my first book and i'm in the process of editing it and now i'm at the part where i'm also like shoot now i gotta figure out number one how am i gonna publish this number two how am i gonna let people know it exists once it's published
1: i think it's relevant what we're gonna talk about because i got my start publishing online i gave my book away for free for five years Mm -hmm. and today I'm a full time author, but that means that my schedule is 80 to 85% promotion. Yep. 20, 15 to 20% writing fiction because writing the book is very hard. Also, it's not the hard part. Getting people to hear about it in this media environment is what's hard. So, Mm -hmm. I have some people, if people who have heard of me already, they most likely have not heard of me from my books. They've heard of me from TikTok. I have a 325,000 followers or something like that. That is not something I'm doing just to amuse myself. That is how I reach people and let them know there is a book coming because the mechanism by which you can let people know a book is coming is very uh, difficult. It is a landscape that is incredibly crowded and you have an audience that has an infinity of things they could be doing other Mm -hmm. than reading your book.
0: Yes, that's very true. Well, yeah, and uh, we can talk about it a little bit just for anybody that's tuning in um, who has not heard of Jason. You know, maybe you're maybe you just like our author interviews and and you're checking this one out. Number one, uh, go ahead and pick up Jason's books. They're all really good and really funny. But your first book, John Dies at the End, uh, like you mentioned, you had it up on uh, it was on Cracked, right? Just you would put it up a little bit at a time and see about
1: feedback. Even predates crack. We're talking okay. going back to the early 2000s, maybe 2001, 2002. I had just a blog on one of the blogging platforms mm-hmm. at a time before the word blog existed, <laughs> because in those days, you know, you're talking about 2002. You're talking about a time when most it was the first time most households had an Internet connection. But it was probably close to 5050, where most people in America still mm-hmm. did not have Internet. Mm-hmm. Um So I was one of those people and back then a web page was just whatever you put on it. It was just a page with text. You could only do text. A photo would take seven or eight minutes to load. There was no such thing as video or audio. So at the time I had this blog, that's where the David Wong username came from because back in those days, everybody was publishing under a pseudonym. It was back in the early hacker days of the internet. So Mm -hmm. everybody had, you, you would just see, you know, you'd read a very thoughtful, long blog article, but then the name of the author was like Demon Sword, 187. like Right. And so uh, in my case, I had started way back then writing online just, just essays and poems, anything. But I also was writing this short story, these horror stories. It just came out a little bit at a time. And then the protagonist was named David Wong. And in the story on the first page, he's a white guy who has picked that as a pseudonym because he thinks it'll make it harder for his enemies to find him because Wong yes. is the most common surname in the world. So it, he has this genius idea, and then you realize, oh, he's an idiot because everyone immediately asks him, "That's why do you have that name? Were your, were your parents Chinese? Like, So yeah. it's just establishing that he's a dumbass. Well, when the, the stuff was written, it was written as the character in mm. the story, Dave. Not just that, because I, back then— you could totally separate yourself from what you were writing. You were totally anonymous. So you could go to your day job and not know that you had this whole other life online and you had fans. And over time I did have, I started to grow a group of fans. Like this story went viral. So that I just posted it for free, making no money from it for, Mm. this went on for years. And then from there, it was in around 2006, 2007 Um, I had started self-publishing it just because people were messaging me saying, hey, I've printed out your story so far, but it's really cumbersome. I've got it on like a three-ring binder. Do you have a print version? So I was like, I I guess I can. So I went through a print-on-demand service, and then an indie publisher came along and did. They did like a $500 advance to publish a few thousand copies of it. And then from there, one of those wound up in the hands of a famous Hollywood horror producer, director, mm-hmm. and he bought the film rights from that. Like at that point, I had no agent, no publisher, no editor. Wow. I had never, never done any of that stuff. he Like he emailed me cold, like had to try to look up my email address to say, hey, I want to make wow. a movie out of this. So then I, that same year, 2007, I got the job at Crack writing full time. But prior to okay. that, and the entire time I was writing John Dies at the end, I was just working a day job at an insurance company. Mm-hmm. And not not like not writing creative copy or anything. I was just doing data entry. I was making eleven bucks an hour to enter like insurance claims into a computer. Okay, um, which was a decent job. I'm not I'm not acting sure, like sure. that's my my rough scary background. It was a you know it's a job a lot of people love to have. Well, and back in the
0: back in the 2008 days, anybody listening now is like eleven dollars an hour. Back in the
1: 2008 days, that was pretty decent, you know. Um, oh. And they treated me well, so I, I never I, I I try to. It's funny talking about my background because I try to make it clear that I didn't like come up through a writer scene. I'm not, you know, I didn't live in New York. I didn't work at a publishing house. I didn't come up through as, you know, an editor's assistant or something like that. I I didn't have an English degree. Mm -hmm. I wasn't aspiring to be an author. I was just a guy. I had graduated with a degree in broadcast journalism that I wound up not using. And I was just taking odd jobs like that insurance company I got through a temp agency and I was just working to yeah. pay the bill, so that was my day job. Just I had two jobs. I worked there, and I worked at a law office in the evening doing their billing and stuff. But it was just two two office jobs that I was trading back and forth. Two part time office jobs, and then at night and on weekends, I was writing just whatever came into my head. And this story I wrote, a story called "John Dies at the End." Again, the joke being that it's telling you what happens at the end of it. Yeah. Um, it kind of went viral back when things like that could. Back when a hundred and fifty thousand word text document online could go viral as a piece of content people were sharing Mm -hmm. because there were there were no such thing as podcasts back then there was no youtube right i know i'm i know i'm talking about like this is 1943 but the people under a certain age cannot comprehend the world before the internet
0: exactly it's it's pretty wild the the rapidity at which uh the technology has changed everything you know so
1: um, and that's answering one of the most common questions I get. Because even doing the show, the first thing people ask, because I don't doubt we have that we have aspiring authors listening to this, because that's who seeks out you know interviews with authors. Like how did they true. do it? And so they asked me, well, what would you do? It's like what you would do in twenty twenty three bears no resemblance to mm-hmm. what. Like I would probably release it as a piece of audio now. I would probably, or I would put it up on YouTube where I could put on mm-hmm. clips on TikTok or you, you go to where people are now. But back then yeah, the internet was for nerds and mm-hmm. it was text only. Everything was text only. So now there's a whole like ripe ecosystem of fan fiction, you know, and Wattpad and, and AO3 and all of these sites that are just an entire ecosystem of amateur writers doing fanfic or doing whatever. Yeah. Where now I think where we're a lot of authors come from. When I got started, that didn't exist. Like the idea of writing a, a novel online, I had never heard of anyone doing that. I'm not saying I was first, I'm just saying that it wasn't a known thing. And for publishers, it definitely wasn't a known thing. So I have never done any of the traditional stuff. I've never written a query letter. letter. I've never gone out shopping oh, okay. for an agent. The way it happened was I was a guy working at an insurance company who on the side wrote a story that went viral. A Don Coscarelli, a, a horror producer yep. director, bought the film rights. And then St. Martin's, one, one of the big five publishing houses, came to me and said, well, can we, like, we, we should do a." a hardcover release of this this thing and and we had to negotiate the rights away from that publisher that i had sold it to Mm -hmm. we did a hardcover release and then they they were like now do you have an agent i was like no where do you where do you find an agent do you know any like how do you do that yeah so then i had to go to an agent and say hey i don't need you it's like i already have a book deal." I already have a movie deal. I need you to look at the paperwork, <laughs> like like this is the <laughs> easiest agent stuff you're ever going to have. It's it, so all the advice is like, well, how do you sell yourself to an agent? How did you convince? Sure. It's like, I walked in saying, I need somebody to look at this contract. I don't know what I'm looking at, mm-hmm. and 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 negotiate it for me. And then and then it. So I did everything backward, but it was extremely fortunate. So right, the point I was trying to make before is that I, I'm fortunate in that sense. I'm not fortunate since that like my dad was a best-selling author and he got me this, you know, like sure, I had no you, conditions.
0: you're, you just had to, you sure. And happy accidents do happen. It's, it's like the old myth, you know, the old Hollywood myth, you're going to get off the bus and somebody's going to say, Hey, uh, you, you look great. Let me make you a star. It's that it, it's the whole idea of you did something you loved and it just happened to connect um with with people and people enjoyed it, and that so yeah, I, you know, happy accident, which is which is awesome um, and I love that, and it, you know it's it's pretty awesome that you got to go on and, and write more of those stories. So I love that story actually,
1: <laughs> oh, and we I did a lot of press at the time because the movie came out in in two thousand twelve, and they mm-hmm. I got to fly out to Sundance with the cast and they did q and a when you know they're treating me like one of the famous people. And I did a lot of press at the time, like this overnight success story. And it's like, well, I started writing in 1998 and it took, I I gave it away for free for five plus years and then sold it as an indie, you know, self-publishing and then an indie press release selling four or five copies a week. It's like if you ground away at a task for nine straight years without earning barely a penny from it. I don't know that that's still overnight success. No, Like (laughs) like the success arrived all at once, but I had to learn how to write novels. And the way I learned how to write novels is I went on the Internet and started writing a novel Mm -hmm. because I was so, uh, you know, they they hook it up for me in 1998 or whenever I got my first connection on AOL. It's like, oh, I can type anything and the words just appear on the screen for anyone to read. All right. I have I have I was born at just the right time to take advantage of this because it was getting that on the ground floor. I was one of the first people among the first people on Earth making stuff for the Internet. You know, there was there was hundreds of thousands of us, but still considering that like now, you know, there's three billion Internet users or whatever. At the time, it's like, no, I was on the, the bleeding edge of producing stuff for the Internet. And that if I had come along 10 years before or after, maybe none of this happens. So that in itself is fortune.
0: That's true. Now I did mention it at the top. I want to, I just want to let everybody know you, uh, number one, you do, uh, well, the John dies at the end series is, is horror comedy. Um, but your titles, uh, straight off the bat, one of the things I always love is when I when I pick up one of your new books and I read the title, you're like the king of titles. Uh John Dies at the end. This book is full of spiders. Seriously, dude, don't touch it. Uh Futuristic Violence in Fancy Suits, which boy i love that title uh what the hell did i just read zoe punches the future in the dick and if this book exists you're in the wrong universe and of course your new book that is about to come out is called zoe is too drunk for this dystopia which again is just just fantastic so you 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 have a just a sense of humor that is Just even right in the title, your sense of humor and just how you are going to approach the story is right there, right from the get-go.
1: And again, that violates a lot of rules of book titles. You're supposed to keep them short. Mm -hmm. Like that's something in book marketing that ideally a title would be like two words or three words, something like that. And so my, my titles are an entire sentence, but this is where, if there's a lesson here is that any rule somebody tells you in terms of something that's creative like here's what's selling right now if you're dealing with a creative field there's always an advantage in breaking those rules like you should immediately think okay is there something in you know doing it totally wrong so having a book called you know what the hell did i just read or if this book exists you're in the wrong universe that's what is that like 11 words yeah. that's a long title it's hard to fit it on the book um but also Know there was a time not too many years ago, they would, you know, they would not allow you to put profanity in the title of a book. Whereas now, if you go to the self help section, 80% of the books have the F word in the title, they've just got it censored out. So, things like that, of like having a goofy title or a title that's too long or whatever, that can make you stand out. But I didn't do it to stand out, I did it because I just thought well, you can at least make somebody laugh when they see it on the shelf. Like, even if they can't afford to buy the book, they'll get two seconds of amusement reading. Like, oh, this book's actually called John Dies at the End. It's just telling me. Uh, And now there are multiple books that are some version of the character dies at the end. I'm not saying they stole the idea, but it's now not an original idea anymore. That's what what I'll say.
0: Sure. And uh, the... It's just with original ideas, when we talk about how you can make things your own, obviously the idea of of a spooky town, which you focus on and John dies at the end, you know, uh, John and David, they live in undisclosed, um, which is, uh, you know, a spooky town. But you do it in a way where uh, this is a spooky town that is a national reputation for being a spooky town. It's on. Uh, the government's radar, there's always, you know, mysterious, shady characters coming in to try and stop John and, and David from messing everything up. And it, so it's just another way in which, um, what am I trying to say? You, you know, you take a, a, a an old concept, you know, um, and go, no, no, let's look at this this way and, and make it this. And it, it works just so well. Um, so that's, that's, you know, what I was trying to get at there.
1: <laughs> well, Like small town horror has always been a thing. And, and even like stranger things didn't, they didn't borrow the idea from me. Like that's, no, that goes yeah. back to the Stephen King tradition of, you know, these small towns in New England or whatever, because small towns, especially writing in Stephen King's prime, you know, in the seventies or eighties, these places truly felt isolated, you know, and pre telecommunications, pre cell phones, pre yeah. Um, internet, a small town, you felt like you were on an island. You're so disconnected from where the culture happens, from where world events happen. So mm-hmm. they're always perfect for this kind of cosmic horror because the idea is if there is some small town in the middle of, and it doesn't even specify what state they're at, but if it's in the middle of Ohio or Indiana or or whatever, mm-hmm. the, something like that could be happening and the rest of the world wouldn't necessarily know. Uh, and so it's less true today as the series is going on like technology it feels like if an actual monster emerged from you know an abandoned uh coal mine somewhere in Appalachia that there would be a million cell phone cameras capturing that for TikTok yeah so we usually are forming some reason why that doesn't happen but what you're trying to maintain is this idea that nobody's coming to help you and nobody cares what happens to you and this has been a thing that as these books have gone along and as what has happened politically in America since 2015 has happened, more and more people who talk to me in more and more interviews kind of focus on the concept that John and Dave were from red America, from what would now be Trump country, because it's it's rural, it's economically depressed, high unemployment. Right. It's a place that had a decent economy and, and had factories and things back in the 80s, and they just have shut down one at a time, which is a story you can find all across this country Mm -hmm. as the cities have grown and all of the population has drained into the cities and all of these small towns have just seen their jobs either move overseas or all the, you know, the service industry jobs or the, the intellectual type, you know, office type jobs have all moved to the cities or to where universities are. And they've just seen themselves kind of wilt. Yeah. So more and more as time has gone on, even though I started these, you know, these books 20 years ago, People have seen them more and more as a commentary on, like globalization, what it's done to the rural parts of this country. Because the symbolism of, you are a young person in a truly hopeless town where you're just watching like storefronts close and and degrade and fall apart, and entire neighborhoods that were beautiful in the '60s and '70s are now just crumbling. Yeah. And it's all being done to you by forces you don't understand. It's being done by corporations who have their headquarters on the other side of the planet. Mm -hmm. And those jobs were shipped to a factory in India or wherever. You don't even know where it went. But the point is that everything that's happening to your town, all of that degradation, is occurring due to forces outside of your control that you don't understand. You don't understand who's manufacturing the the fentanyl. Uh You don't understand all of these things that you are the victim of. So the cosmic horror themes that we as humans are just helpless in the face of these hugely powerful entities that we can't even comprehend, people see that as symbolism because it's like, yeah, that's what they're actually living. But it doesn't even need to be, it doesn't need to be that. I think it's a universal experience of anybody living in a small village anywhere. Right now, there's some teenagers living in a village in India that I'm sure feel the exact same way, that they- You know, that we've been abandoned here and we don't have control over our lives because our fates are in the hands of total strangers 5000 miles away.
0: Wow. I hadn't actually thought of any of those books in that way, but now I now I do see it versus uh, since we're on the subject of symbolism and everything. I do see the Zoe Ash novels in a certain sort of light. Uh, you've been talking about uh, TikTok and being online and everything like that. And in Futuristic Violence in Fancy Suits and Zoe Punches the Future in the Dick and now in in um, Zoe is Too Drunk for this Dystopia, you have invented Blink, which is essentially just uh, a, a giant version of Always on TikTok slash YouTube slash Kind of a surveillance state and I read it and I think to myself, you know, this is a, a little bit scary, but also a very uh, believable future because Zoe's books are are set, quote unquote, in the not too distant future. And I'm like, oh, this is a a, a scary yet very believable outcome for the world, because, you know, a lot of times when people write about the future they either write about like a, a, you know, Star Trek utopia or a Mad Max hellscape. And you're kind of somewhere in the middle where you're like, it's not that much different than now, except some of these things here have changed that are either awesome or not awesome, but the world is still somewhere right in the middle.
1: (laughs) And all science fiction set in the future is secretly about the present, right? Right. So when you're trying to, in this case, I wanted a future where the cars are still on the ground. You don't have sentient robots. That's something I think is actually very far away. I am, mm-hmm. but you have you have self driving cars and you have a social media network. And this was the big thing because I was confident that this will exist in my lifetime. Where basically, they've made cameras small enough that they can you could just pin them to your your clothes. Mm-hmm. there's the size of buttons, and they just live stream your life. All day and then they've just got software in them that, that detects that goes up and zooms in on points of interest so you're not having to operate the camera it just does it. so then blink as a user you can hop to any of these live feeds any camera that's pinned to somebody's body any mm-hmm. camera that's mounted out outdoors or any traffic camera any drone there's all these hobby drones flying everywhere these which are just tiny you know sparrow type drones Yes. So you as a user basically have a God's eye view of the world as long as there's a camera nearby. And so if there's an event in this universe, like there's a crime, there's a mass shooting or something that happens in the middle of a city, and you've got 500 bystanders, you have 500 views of it, and you may have 10 drones overhead you may have security cameras you may have cameras on dashboards of every car now has a camera Mm -hmm. and you can blink as you can just hop from feed to feed to feed and watch it happen real time you basically have an omniscient view of the world yeah but that means that every single person living in that society has to assume they're on camera every moment they're outside their home Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so the question that these books ask on top of others is how does that affect your, your behavior? Because already now you kind of assume that you could be on camera. But for example, I think most people will still go to a restaurant and have a conversation with their friends and assume that it is private. Sure. Or if you're having an argument on a sidewalk, like it's conceivable somebody could pull out their phone and record you. But you still assume, like, if you're having a bitter argument about your job on a street corner, you assume that's just between the two of you. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a world where, you know, a microphone can pick you up from 100 yards away or it can pick you up from the sky. Yeah. So the concept of there's no longer such a thing as private behavior unless you're in the home. And if you're in the home, you have to be sure there's not somebody there with a camera. How does that change how people behave? How does that change? Because already with the social media era, we've seen such a fundamental difference in how people talk to each other. Because how two people talk to each other when they're in private versus how two people talk to each other when they know they have an audience sure. is radically different. Because now it's a performance. Now in any kind of a disagreement, there is no way you can back down. Because you're on in a price fight. You have, you're in a ring with people mm-hmm. cheering you on, whereas privately between two people, you could work things out. So this is a world where she finds herself in very kind of high stakes conflict. She winds up at the head of a crime family through no fault of her own, But all of these conflicts play out with this gamesmanship of people trying to get the public on their side with everything they do in public, everything, every the, what they eat, how they dress, everything is being judged. And when you ask, what does that do to a human mind? I think it's not trivial. I'm not trying to scare people about the technology. I think it fundamentally changes the dynamic.
0: Yeah. And and you illustrate that really well, because even though Zoe uh, exists in that world, when she's poor, before she becomes the head of this company slash crime family, uh, she doesn't think about necessarily... The way this reflects, you know, how she looks, how what she's doing reflects on anything. And then she meets the suits, the of futuristic violence and fancy suits, fame, and she all of a sudden has the character Will in her ear all the time, going, Well, you can't do that, it will look this way. And in in Zoe, uh, the new one, uh, Zoe is too drunk for this dystopia, it's about an election, and she can't be seen to do. Anything that might tip this entire city towards electing the wrong guy for mayor because you know, everything she does every moment of the day is on camera, and so that really did, um, you know, make me think about you know, not just how being on camera all the time affects how you act, but also how positions of power might have to make you act, you know,
1: yeah. And this is part of what these stories about is someone who grew up without any power. She grew up, at the start of the first book, she's living in a trailer park with her mother, Mm -hmm. and then she finds out, to spoil the first quarter of the book, she finds out that she has come into this inheritance where basically her estranged father, her biological father, who she had no relationship with, was a Bugsy Siegel type, someone who had legitimate interests in terms of real estate and casinos, but also was heavily mobbed up, just Mm -hmm. tons of just heavily involved in organized crime, very paranoid. And for mysterious reasons, when he passes, he leaves everything to her, everything, all of his properties, all of his money, all of his employees now work for her. So this just lands in her lap. So she's someone who had grown up basically outside of capitalism, having no stake in that game. She's right. someone who had been abandoned by it. Her, her mother has no money. Um, and then suddenly finds herself at the wheel of capitalism. Someone suddenly finds herself in one of the positions where she can make a difference in people's lives, and then instantly finds out that it's not that easy, and especially not that easy to be a good person in that situation. So everything about what she does, there's two layers to it. There's what actually is going to affect things, but there's also how she comes across, because to what degree does she want to be the face of this organization? Or Mm -hmm. Did her father secretly make her the face of this organization to try to whitewash what they were doing because they knew she would seem sympathetic. She's this young woman. She's kind of, kind of sarcastic and, and funny and she came from nothing. It's like, did he just throw this in her lap specifically to like put a different face on what he was doing? And if so, then, what is her responsibility? What is your responsibility as a cog in a machine where you are benefiting greatly from the machine? She has all the wealth, but also there's no real way to extricate herself from it. So in some ways it's kind of what we all have to face where you are, you grew up in a very privileged society, but it got here by oppressing a whole bunch of people. So it's yeah. like, well, what is your responsibility to give back or how do you make it Right. When every single day that you walk around, you are benefiting from the society and its infrastructure and everything else. It's kind of that only blown up to a, a crazy, a crazy degree.
0: Oh, sure. And and even though we're, we're talking about these books in this manner that, you know, even though they are, they are, they're, they're wildly entertaining, they're, they're sci-fi, they're horror, um, they're comedy. Uh, the the Zoe books especially have made me really – not that this isn't something I do anyway, but like you just said, I think about sometimes how I am the cog in the machine and how even higher up than me, somebody might be thinking, well, if I do this, then a bunch of people – because Zoe wants everything to have a, a a good black and white answer where she's like, I just want to do the right thing, and then there's somebody there going – Well, if you do that thing and it is the right thing and we shut down this portion of our business, all these people over here are going to lose their jobs. And, you know, maybe they'll end up in in sex work or maybe they'll end up homeless and maybe they won't be able to feed their children and all that kind of thing. And so it does make me while I'm reading these books, I think about that. And it's 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 a marker. You know, I always say if the purpose of art is to make you think then this, this, these books especially are doing a job, you know, doing a good job at that, you know?
1: I try very hard to make it, all of the books I write something that you can enjoy, hopefully, mm-hmm. on any level because they are adventures and they are in some ways very ridiculous. Oh, in the, yes. In the, in the Zoe Ash books, this is, will be the third. They're episodic. You could technically read them in any order if you wanted to, but the, the way... People act when they all believe they're performing and especially the posturing among the men in a society where they feel like they Uh have to really demonstrate how big and tough they are and and how over the top they get is truly ridiculous. And it's comical because you can see right through these people and how they're all trying to puff themselves up and all trying to create a brand or an image for themselves. And it's very silly. But at the same time, you know, science, science fiction should always be about trying to make you think about something. And I, my, one of my go-to examples is the film, RoboCop. That oh. is a film that is literally called RoboCop. That is a, yeah. that is a title like you would expect from an, an asylum film, like yep. one of those cheap knockoffs you see in the DVD, bin at the grocery store. Like it's called RoboCop, but it is this Great action, bloody blood and gore action story. You can enjoy it on that level. But also, it's got tons of satire about the Reagan era, about privatization, and also has this incredibly incisive through line about dehumanization and trying to cling to your humanity Mm -hmm. and the whole thing where he has a helmet that covers his face. And that's to symbolize that he's part machine and part human. And then at the end they have to take it off and it exposes his full face. And he starts to recover his own memories and try to reclaim himself from this corporation, from this, the machine that brought him back to life, the corporation gave him like they gave him his body. He is benefiting from the strong body that the corporation built for him but trying not to lose his humanity. Like there are actual Oscar winning smart movies that don't get to the heart of that as well as RoboCop does. Yeah, it's wild. So I try to do the same thing. I am not claiming I am as talented as Paul Verhoeven or anyone involved in that, but I, I try to do the same thing because every single minute of Zoe's life is a dilemma. So like mm-hmm. you, you mentioned, her her father being a, a crime lord and being a crime lord in what is – basically this takes place in a fictional city that happened the way Las Vegas happened in the 1950s, 1960s, where Las Vegas used to be a tiny town in the middle of the desert. Yep. And then Bugsy Siegel and a few other investors just built a casino in the middle of nowhere, and then it just sprang up. Like in the middle of the desert, like it's the worst right. place to put something. Yes. And so that's that's all they've done here is they decided that they basically built what libertarians call a charter city. Like, uh-huh. let's go in the middle of nowhere and build a new city under our rules, where under where the state government will let us do our own thing and as a proof of concept that our way of governing works. So in the mm-hmm. world of these books, somebody has built a Dubai type city full of skyscrapers in the middle of Utah. Yes. But right now there's there's hardly anything there. Just a little, there's some, some cool little small towns and hiking there right now. And so they have built basically this new Las Vegas, but it's a very lawless place because that was the idea is, is that they wanted to prove that you could have, if it's just all capital and businesses and private security and you privatize everything, this can work. If you get enough money all in one place, it can work. And mm-hmm. of course it it does not, it's no. a catastrophe, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's a lawless comical place. And so her father being this type also has lots and lots of sex workers. Zoe is in favor of sex work. Conceptually, her mother was a sex worker for a while. Mm -hmm. She does not approve of anyone who talks, uh, who tries to dehumanize that work. And also some of these women were straight up trafficked. Some of them were stolen from the countries they're from. Some of them came here as refugees and were basically locked into doing the work because they had their passports taken and were told they had to work off a debt which is a real thing that happens with human trafficking. It is. Mm-hmm. So you have in her father's employee, women who were basically kidnapped into it, women who were underage, but also women who are charging $5,000 per date and are making good money and love it. And they, they. so having the black and white decision of, okay, I'm going to get out of sex work or I'm just going to get rid of all it. I don't approve of the way like, it in many of these cases she realizes a lot of these of these women are working to pay off their their addictions they're only mm-hmm. working to because they're addicts yeah realizing that fixing that problem is not as simple as writing them a check or sending them to rehab or doing whatever this is what weighs on her because it's like well but we are perpetuating this problem, like we are part of the machine. It's like, yeah, you sure are. What do you want to do? And so, at every step, she tries. But if you say, well, we're going to drug test everybody, and if you fail, then you're going to we're going to fire you from the brothels. Okay, so now they're on the street. Yeah. So now, now they don't have the protection of your of your organization. Now they're out on their own. They're independent. They're going to go work for a guy, or also going to go. They're going to have, go scatter on their own, where their chances of being murdered goes up something like ten thousand percent. You know, uh, it's like, well, then what am I supposed to do? And that's what these books are about, because it's not none of these solutions are as easy as they sound from the outside. And, yeah. and it's not to it's not to it's not to excuse the billionaires of the world's like, see, they're doing their best. It's to point out that. This system has a way of making everyone as an individual feel powerless in the machine, uh-huh. So in her case, she keeps running up against this thing of like, well, but the the people, there's certain demand for certain things, and somebody's going to provide it. So what do you do? You have a place where the law is not going to help you, so what do you do? And that's what she keeps trying to tackle. Because in in many ways, there's the element of the wish fulfillment story where somebody comes into money and finds out they're basically royalty. Oh, yeah but it's also like now now you're to blame for what people are, are going through because now you you are in a position of extreme privilege so now how mm-hmm. do you deal with that and it's very this is the the whole thing it's very difficult for her because she would not go back she doesn't want to go back to the trailer park right but also this is something she truly doesn't know how to navigate
0: right and just um <laughs> Cause we, we talked a little bit about, you, you talked about how, you know, you want to make everything, uh, also an adventure and all kinds of stuff. And t- sometimes things are ridiculous. I don't want to give away, but there is something in the most recent book that, um, you know, comes from, there's an incident, um, I'll just say in a factory and you'll know what I'm talking about and people that don't read that, but there's an incident that, is an inciting incident where, uh, something totally ridiculous happens. And it's that thing, like you just said, where Zoe is kind of faced with just another problem that comes from, um, her, her situation in life and from people viewing her as the source of problems, um, where now she's not actually done anything wrong but because somebody views her as the source of a problem she has to deal with the fallout of that
1: and to be clear they're not wrong this is part of what she's has to come to terms with is that she is in a position to help and if she doesn't help mm-hmm. then that's the same as having done the harm Yes. And this is what the the discussion about things like privilege, the way people talk online about politics anything like this can be so frustrating because nobody enjoys hearing like you have privilege, you have a responsibility to use your privilege as a white man or as whatever, to try to lift up Mm -hmm. people and lift up voices and try to do uh, try to help. And it's like, you know, people hear that and they can always say, look, I'm working 60 hours a week. I pay my taxes. I don't commit any crimes. Like, what else do you want from me? What else do you mm-hmm. want? And so with her, it's just in a very extreme version of that, where it's like, well, well, yeah, I technically have a billion plus dollars in assets. I I technically employ how many tens of thousands of people, uh, but, but how, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to stop all the crime that's going on? How do you want me to stop the homelessness? It's like, well, you could have bought all these people homes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well... Yeah, you know, like, like technically, but also a lot of them are addicts. They don't know how to maintain a home. So it's like, well, you could have hired someone to maintain their home for them. It's like, yeah, but they need. A lot of them are severely mentally ill. They shouldn't be living on their own. It's like, well, you should have built a facility to. Yeah, and then so you you try to do that, and then you're running up against like zoning issues and the and the legalities of being able to build a place. So I think she's gotten to a place where she's trying to not let her own sense of helplessness get in the way of the reality of what she can still do because again the world will try to trick you into believing that you can't do anything when in reality everybody can do something right she just has a cartoonishly outsized version of that dilemma
0: yes uh i want to ask you a question just because um there's uh a difference in style between which obviously they're different stories are about different characters but there is a difference in style between the the john dies at the end series and the zoe series in that um the john dies at the end series is is very ridiculous uh kind of you know full of immature humor and it's it's a little out there and everything and the zoe series is uh still very funny and everything but it's more grounded more believable when you went in was there any sort of intention that you were going to write the the new series in a different style than you had been writing or did that just come from the story itself
1: yeah it was a chance to do something something different but you know the the story the tone of John dies at the end comes from mainly from the protagonist because it's very much for the most part seen from his point of view, you know, and it's a very strict first person perspective and he and his friends are from this place where they have an extremely profane sense of humor mm-hmm. because of just where they're from. And like, this is the, like, the most politically incorrect place on earth. These yeah. are, There's a place that is very poor, high unemployment, that is very rural, and it's also from a part. There's just a cultural tone that is from the part of the Midwest that's not the polite part of the Midwest. If you if you're from there, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That it it goes to there's just you know the America has different vibes based on where you go, and this place is kind of like the opposite of California. Um, it's, it's the opposite of laid back. It is very, so in his mind, this is someone who is an extreme misanthrope. This is someone in David, the narrator, who is extremely intelligent, but not in any way that helps him or anyone else. Yeah, He can just instantly have observations about what's ridiculous about a situation and the phrasing and the turns of phrase and the way he sees things, the way he describes things, the way he he will see an object and things like that in the way it is described in his mind as he'll compare it to looking like blank and it's always something ludicrous. So there's something ridiculous every other sentence in those books because it just is very, very rapid fire. I think some young person reading those books today, unfortunately would say, oh, this is Rick and Morty. This Mm. This is two guys, you've got kind of different personalities. One is kind of like laid back. One of them is kind of just plunge ahead into the adventure and it's rapid fire it's almost cartoonish and how fast it goes how quickly the the you know the Mm -hmm. the the jokes come incredibly fast it's slapstick it's very gory and profane yeah but like rick and morty it's all it's always based around some sort of abstract thought experiment type horror concept so it's very smart that it's it's a smart idea but the characters are all stupid so they don't know how to think about it so there's like something smart happening but the protagonist's aren't smart enough to, to comprehend it. So their narration and their thoughts are very extremely stupid. So it's a combination yeah. of very low humor and very high idea. They did not steal it from me. I'm just saying
0: yeah.
1: I wrote this way before Rick and Morty came along <laughs> that if we made a a show, a John Dies Dean show, I think the first thing somebody would say is, Oh, they've, they've ripped off Rick. They're, they're doing a live action Rick and Morty. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's creatures coming out of other dimensions it's dimension hopping it's multiverse stuff and it's it's very crude in its humor but it's it's also very thoughtful and what's happening and all that so i i would i would never go out and tell people oh if you like rick and morty you should buy my books because that sounds stupid coming out of my mouth (laughs) but also it's absolutely true it is
0: it is though i know you
1: can very similar tone
0: yeah, I I wouldn't fault you for saying that. You say it sounds stupid coming out of your mouth, but in it I can see where you would say that, but also like yeah, they're they're kind of the same like you said. It's not like they necessarily stole it from me, but they are kind of the same thing where except um I you know, I I would say that in in your books um you also have the addition of of uh some some other Uh, the the girlfriend characters and everything like that that kind of separated out and also one none of i don't think either david you say is very smart but not in any way that helps him but he's still i still don't think he's necessarily um like none of especially uh he and john are not geniuses so
1: (laughs) yeah their actions like none of their intelligence translates to their actions but they know like a lot of trivia and they always know they're always quick with a remark or with with a funny line mm-hmm. or whatever, but that's that's as much intelligence as they have in terms of their decision making. It doesn't help. Another way to describe it would be like if it's Stranger Things, but if you came back to the Stranger Things kids like 10 years later and they were all like alcoholics yeah. and burnout and the town had fallen down around them and the, and the, the businesses had moved away and it's just like a yeah. very – and they had just completely given up on everything and just had a very misanthropic view of life. It's kind of that. It's kind of, it's it's, it's Stranger Things after everyone has burned out and, and given up on life. <laughs> um, but anyway, we, how that contrasts with Zoe, there it's a very different protagonist. So you're mm-hmm. hearing, again, it's from Zoe's point of view, almost strictly within her point of view. And she just have a, has a different uh, worldview. Like she's very sure. sarcastic. She has those defense mechanisms. She was kind of picked on growing up. Um, but it's it's a it's a world that's a little bit more serious. It's a world that is not again. There's no supernatural in the Zoe world. It takes right. place in our universe. Basically, it's just a different an alternate timeline where somebody had built a huge city of the future in the desert. Which, by the way, there are multiple billionaires trying to do this. I didn't pull that idea out of my butt. It's it's something that okay. many billionaires they're trying to buy up land in different parts of California, just any place where they've got someplace where they've got a governor or a local county and state government that, that kind of would let them do it and doesn't, would let would let them be, let them kind of, mm-hmm. with the idea that it'll attract enough businesses and bring in a bunch of tax revenue or whatever. Huh. So that's a thing that someday will exist. Um, but it is, because it's, it's seen through the eyes of a protagonist who's coming at it from a different perspective, you just don't get as, for me, that's how you judge the tone of a book. It's the voice of the protagonist you're seeing it through their eyes right and and so it's not it's not like total uh, slapstick craziness, but it's more uh it's again, it's obviously not dead serious there's there's heavy elements of satire, but it's not it's not uh, goofy if some people are worried about the books being too jokey or whatever i it's yeah. not like that.
0: No, I I wouldn't say that at all. And one of the other things I am interested in just I I pay a lot of attention to stand-up comedy and obviously writing jokes. Uh you know, everybody thinks that there's people, you know, you're just naturally funny like that. And you know, people are naturally funny and quick-witted, but also a lot of writing goes into jokes when you set out to write uh you know, one of your books, is it are you planning jokes ahead of time? Are you looking at your plot and where that's coming from and kind of trying different things in the in the humor? Or is that, um, or, or do you not think about it too much and then they kind of just arise naturally?
1: Well, here's the funny thing. I can only write in a humorous tone. If I try to write oh, in a okay. dead serious tone, I, I find it boring. So like I got my writing training uh, writing, blogging online, as I mentioned, in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there was a whole mm-hmm. range of comedy blogs that most of them are gone now, mm-hmm. some of them are still around. But it was a style that was very appealing to people that were very attention-starved in terms of, or into, like, did not mm-hmm. not have long attention spans. So it was extremely dense in terms of its writing in terms of the jokes in terms of you would have multiple jokes in one sentence. you would have a punchline every other sentence is very it's a very quick style so you would still have long form. you would have articles that went on for four thousand words or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. it, it was very rapid fire a- and it was a style where I will rewrite a paragraph between five and twenty times before it finally goes out to the audience. it's okay. it's rewriting, 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 rewriting making it more and more compact, adding more and more funny lines and rephrasing jokes, getting the word choice just right. It is just endless editing on top of editing on top of editing. And that's that's where I learned to write. It's just the scene at the time in the early the internet blogging scene. That's kind of what comedy sounded like. So that's, where, that's what my writing sounds like, and that's where it came from.
0: Sure. So when
1: I'm writing... You like I heavily outline in advance because I have to know I don't have the attention span to just sit down and like a freight train like drive from here to there in the plot like George R. R. Martin says he just like discovers where the plot takes him. I can't do that mm-hmm. because my mind will just wander off to God knows where you you have right. no idea where that train would wind up, but it not at the ending of the story. It would be. Uh-huh. some totally other story. I would wind up following some other character home and we would just be talking <laughs> about their life for it. and then I have to remember, wait, now what was this about? <laughs> so I have to heavily outline. So most, I do tons and tons of prep work okay. in advance, Um, in, which a lot of authors say they would never do this. Like there's a lot of them that it's straight up advised. You should not do this. For me, it's the only way I can write something that's long form is to have it completely outlined to exactly mm-hmm. what's going to happen on the plot. So in terms of the jokes and comedy beats, there are these big set pieces of like a big, ridiculous slapstick thing that's going to happen. Yes. And that's planned in advance, but then you have the actual writing, the actual text of it, and then everything leading up there. And then within that text, you have just there's humor in the text like ideally when somebody walks through the, their front door of their home they're noticing something funny about the front door they're noticing something funny about the welcome mat there mm-hmm. they're making an observation about so that's in these stories that's what carries you from moment to moment and then the big stupid moments are things that i have planned and then in the john dies at the end series like the monster designs and stuff like that that's all you know there's something weird about everything that's kind of like striking or goofy or wrong and everything Mm -hmm. is kind of askew but then if you're just sitting down to try to plot out okay i just have to get the characters from here to that house Mm -hmm. a lot of the thinking is like what's something amusing about how they can get there like what's something fun about and so that's part of what takes i'm a slow writer It, it takes a a long time to, to write these books. And that's a lot of it is trying to go back over and over because I don't want there to be a boring sentence in the book because I'm used to writing for the internet where people had infinite options. They, they hadn't paid to read it. So they weren't, it wasn't like you paid 30 bucks for a book. It's like, well, I'm going to stick through and see where it goes. Like I was writing in a day when they clicked on it, they could easily click away. You have pornography in the next tab at any moment. And so yes, yeah, someone who was not invested in it, you have to keep them invested sentence to sentence. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, again, I'm not telling anybody that's how you have to write or that's the right way to write. That's what I was raised That's on. What that, works that my, for you. my yeah. formative years as a writer, that was that's where I was doing it.
0: Well, and you talk about plotting, and you say that uh, it takes you a long time to write a book. But you also brought up somebody that doesn't plot their book, uh, and that you are definitely not like, and that is George R. 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 Martin. So you can at least say you've put out more books recently than he has.
1: But he and the thing is, not to get off on a George R. 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 Martin tangent, but the fans no, get I so it. frustrated. It. It's my bad. The fans get so frustrated with him, and they will talk about him like he's lazy. Mm -hmm. he's not lazy he's always working yes always he has so much stuff going he -hmm. has multiple tv shows he's he's got in development he's constantly having to give feedback on this stuff he's got these other Mm -hmm. compilations he edits he's got these side books he writes he's got Mm -hmm. like i don't think people understand that you know game of thrones is like a billion dollar brand it's it's now it's got another team there's another show there's multiple shows in development there's another show going on And stuff where he's involved creatively or they're asking him, like, I don't know what his exact role is as a consultant, as a producer, whatever. I know he's got his name on it. He wrote Elden Ring, the game. Like he -hmm. has a billion things going on. I hope I'm not having to work that much at his age. It's clear. He loves to do it. Yes. It's also clear that he's lost interest in a song of ice and fire. Yeah. Because I can easily see why, because the ending is already out there. It's mm-hmm. like if you start to tell a joke to at a party and the, one of the people you're telling it to says, oh, I've heard this. Uh, the, the priest says, you didn't come here and hunt, did you? And then because he blew the punchline, nobody laughs because he just said it. He didn't time it or anything. And then everybody's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And then people look at you like, well, finish the joke. It's like, What? <laughs> No, you've already, you know where it's it's yeah. he ruined it by telling you the punchline and he said it wrong. There's no way I can phrase the punchline that's gonna hit the way it would have mm-hmm. if I had just done it right releasing the book every three years the way had I had been, and then boom, and then you're all on the edge of your seat finding out, is Jon Snow gonna come back? What happens to Stannis? what happened to all, you know, to all of these, uh, these people, you know, it, it's what's going to happen to white walkers. And it's like, like if you're an author and you know, the whole world is waiting, waiting to find out and that energy you get up every day. It's like, they are going to die when they see this, they're going to die when they find mm-hmm. out that it's, that, that it's John, that is it, actually the offspring of, of whatever. Now that that's already out there and been discussed to death, what motivation would you have? Not money, He doesn't need the money he's got. He's got more money than he can spend. So what motivation do you have to finish it? And you can say like, well, yeah, but doesn't he want to have his own version of it out there? I cannot imagine that that would provide me even 10 percent of the energy that I would need to finish one of these books, because it takes so much energy to write even a short book. And these books are long as hell. It takes so much to drag yourself to sit there at the typewriter day after day after day after day and grind through it one word at a time to write this freaking 300,000-word-long document and then edit it and then make sure all the continuity lines up with these books that you wrote 20 years ago. The first one came out when? 1990-something. Something Something like that, yeah. Like, there's so much labor, and it takes so much energy and desire and creative desire to see something like that through i can't imagine that he has it in him to finish that series i can't imagine
0: i can't either and you know people that aren't creative uh kind of don't understand what you were just talking about the energy it takes you the you have to keep up your passion for it and it's it's especially if somebody's super creative and is doing multiple projects at once it's like uh, I make the joke all the time, not mean spirited. But when Guillermo del Toro says he has interest in doing something, I'm like, yes, but Guillermo del Toro is interested in doing everything. If he got to every project he says he wants to do, the man would have to live 150 more years or something. like. And probably in those 150 years, he'd find more projects he wanted to do. So yeah. I I totally get it. you know.
1: And in all of these creative things where you're talking about writing a book or making a movie, the fun part is one tiny little sliver of it. Mm -hmm. Like the fun part is sitting around, dreaming up the ideas, dreaming up the really cool scenes, but then there's the actual brick and mortar work. And so in the film business, and if he puts out somewhere, it's like, well, yeah, I would like to make a, whatever, a James Bond movie, a, a, a Guillermo del Toro, James Bond film. Like he could say that, But the actual act of going through the casting and dealing with the people who own that property and and, and substitute this with anything. He says he wants to make a Godzilla movie or whatever. It doesn't matter. The actual art of making a film, like 5% of it is the cool stuff where it's you and the camera and the actors and you're bringing it to life. Mm -hmm. The other 95 plus percent is business and conference calls and all of this business stuff and arrangements with... and auditioning and working with actors and then having to go back and forth about how much control do they want over the script and 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 fighting with the studio over budget and cutting cost and where are we going to shoot and on and on and on and on so finding something and then actually committing to it so you can have somebody like quentin tarantino say i would like to make a star trek movie yeah well that's easy to say that in an interview you can it took no effort to say that the actual act of of Settling down on a project of saying, this is going to be the next two years of my life. This movie, yes. this is going to consume everything. This is, this is it. That's, the, that's hard. That's hard. You got a million things you would love to do, but finally zeroing in on one, you have to be so sure that's the one, because that's mm-hmm. going to suck the life out of you. And you may spend two years putting everything into it. Everything you have heart, mind, body, soul, and then it will come out and nobody will care. It'll bomb at the box office. The reviews will be like, eh. And then it'll go up on streaming and it'll be up on HBO Max on a thumbnail, but next to a bunch of reality show junk because Max just mixes it all up together. So it's your movie Mm -hmm. that you bled for for two years next to like the Love Island or whatever. And they've got 300 episodes of some corny you know, reality show. That has to be so dispiriting. So, you know, because again, making a movie is not like when I make a TikTok where I can make spend 15 minutes making it and it's out there and either it does something or it doesn't. Like mm-hmm. making a movie, writing a novel, any of these things, once you commit to it and you know that that's going to suck years out of your life and then you have to sit there and not know if anybody's going to care, like the world could just be totally indifferent to it. Nobody discusses it. Nobody yeah. cares about it. Nobody talks about it. Yeah, most stuff doesn't get done because it's so easy to say it's not worth it. You have to find the one thing that you know is worth it.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing I can say is worth, I want to be respectful of your time and everything, Jason. So I'm going to start wrapping up here. One thing I can definitely say is worth it is uh, everybody can pick up uh, all the John dies at the end books and all of the Zoe Ash novels. Uh, I, you, you were talking earlier about fans just waiting for things. And, and I, I was, I was waiting for, uh, uh, Zoe is too drunk for this dystopia because I knew it was coming, and so I I, I was very thankful that I I got to read it and and talk to you uh, a little bit about it and about your work. Um, so please let everybody know when uh, Zoe's most recent adventure is available, and and you know uh, just plug anything else you want to plug.
1: Sure. The book is, we keep saying, Zoe is too drunk for this dystopia. It is out October 31st. Uh, if you're listening to this after that date, it should be out in all formats audio, uh, ebook, all of them, in hardcover. Uh, the first two books, the first one is called Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits. The second one is called Zoe Punches the Future in the Dick. Both of those are actually on Kindle Unlimited. If you're an ebook reader, if you've got a Kindle Unlimited description, you can read those for free. Uh, otherwise, they're available in, in audio or you could probably find them at a library or use bookstore. Whatever is the cheapest possible option. I don't care. Things are too expensive. The new one is expensive. It's I'm sorry, that's just what stuff costs now. But the first two you should be able to get for not very much money. But uh, you can also start with just this one. For, yeah. If For some unfathomable reason, you only want to read the most expensive one. These books all explain at the start what's going on. I I never yes. want it to be, I will never uh, probably write a serial story where you have to have read the first eight books to figure out what's going on mm. in book nine. It's that's not my yeah. thing. These are it's like uh, a James Bond adventure or something. that starts out, yeah. it reestablishes who's who, and then we we launch into it. It is not these yeah. books do not end in a cliffhanger. They're all they're all their own contained stories. Yes. Um, otherwise, if you want to keep up with me outside of the books, I am Jason K. Pargin, P-A-R-G-I-N is the last name, on TikTok, where I have three hundred some thousand followers at this point. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. Uh, same username on Twitter X, and Instagram and Threads and Blue Sky. There's so and, many now, and YouTube, and Facebook, and I have two other Facebook pages, and I'm also on Goodreads um there's others oh i'm on substack same username jason (laughs) jason k parjan uh all of the platforms i think except for snapchat i'm the same username and i operate all of those myself i do not have a social media team everything you see posted it is something i posted
0: wow that is uh another full-time job in and of itself
1: (laughs) yes very that cool. is most of my life is is promoting is promoting the books because, yeah. as I've said, writing a book is difficult. Getting people to find out about it yes. in this media environment where a thousand books a day are being written, most of them for free on the on the internet, yeah. uh, that is the hard part. So yes, I I everyone well, who yeah. makes shows like yours and listens to shows like yours, I appreciate you because you are one of the few vectors of telling people, hey, new book. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm very glad I got to help you say that that a new book was coming out. And like I said, I, I hope people maybe that just tuned in because they were interested in, in an author interview uh, will go ahead and, and find the rest of your books if they have not. So thank you so much, Jason, for joining me today.
1: Thank you.